From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining another episode of the Superpowers School podcast. I'm Paddy Dander, your host, and in today's episode, we're doing things a little bit different. We're going to go deep uh, into a topic that I think we've all thought about at some point in our lifetime. And so I thought it'd be great to bring in an expert and talk to us about this particular topic because he's recently written a book. And I think the title of the book probably sums up the theme of this particular episode. It's called The Meaning of Life. Hey, Nate, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, excellent. Yes, all good, my friend. So, Nate, tell us about you. I'd love to know your background and how did you get to write such an amazing book on this very philosophical topic? Sure. So the long story short is that when I was five years old, my father disappeared in the middle of the night. And I don't remember how I felt because I was five, so I don't have any memories really back then. But I do remember when my memories form, because your memories form around five. When I was six, a year later, I went to see him. I'm from Pittsburgh and, and he moved to California. I went to see him for three weeks and two days. And then I came back and it felt like someone ripped my heart out of my chest. Like I felt empty and worthless and miserable. And I wouldn't wish that feeling upon anyone. And I was just bawling my eyes out uh, the night I got back uh, from that trip. And the back of my mind, as I was crying, asking myself, well, what's the point of all this? If we're going to suffer like that, this hurts, this like, this is terrible. What's, what's the meaning of life? And then the back of my mind just kind of goes, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I wonder if you could answer that. So, you know, I'm crying and I'm six. And then I have this philosophical part that found the question fascinating. So I spent the next couple of decades uh, studying anything I could about how the world works, how life works, how people work, uh, human behavior, philosophy, psychology, religion, etc. And it turns out, I, I found out recently in the past couple of years or so, that I actually have mild Asperger's. Uh, so <laughs> it explains my fascination with it because I couldn't do it when I, when it wasn't like other people. Uh, I couldn't, I had to emulate human behavior because I couldn't naturally, you know, just do it. And so that's why I studied so much and tried to understand and, and master it. But after like 20, what is it, 23 years or so, I asked myself the, the question of how I would impart all that knowledge onto someone else from scratch because I was leaving a company and going to another one. And I was like, hey, what would I say if I was leaving? I never gave that speech, but I was like, well, what would I say? And all these uh, ideas, these concepts popped in my head and it started coming out like, oh, well, you need desire, you need belief, you need this, you need that. And I was like, well, what is this? Is it success? And then the callback happened in my brain. Well, no, this is, this is about what the point of everything is, the point of life. And that's how it all began. I had this idea in my head that, you know, I, I just, I wanted to be able to summarize everything I learned, to put it in an objective way, to not give any bias where I say, hey, you should live this way because I said so. But literally said, this is how life works. This is uh, how people, humans specifically, find their sense of meaning and purpose in life. And you can use that information to live the life uh, that is meaningful to you. And so I wrote the book, it took me about seven years and it was just published uh, 20, January 2020, so pretty recently. And it talks through all the research I, I found over the years. It's 150 plus uh, citations. So, Wow. Oh, wow. That must have been a, a big undertaking. I mean, seven years, that's a big part of your life, right? So yeah. I, would, would, tell us about that experience as you're putting the book together. 
Well, it's brutal. The worst part is I have an 80-page chapter on ethics. It is absolutely brutal for me in writing it. And I'm sure it's probably the hardest thing to read because it's uh, what a order of the book or something. And the problem is that you can't talk about ethics and analyze ethics and obsess over ethics without it showing up everywhere. So everything in my entire life was an ethical dilemma during that. And I edited the ethics chapter maybe two or three times to that point where everything is popping up around me. So those were some miserable months. Everything is, oh, that, that's unethical and that's unethical. <laughs> and then meanwhile, I'm trying to write a chapter that's objective, not saying here, the, the, this is what's ethical or not. I didn't put that in there. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was definitely a rough going. It, I rewrote the book a few times. But the good news was that I actually had the outline for the book in just like a week or two. And it was easy. And it was really just filling out all the explanations and the citations and everything that, that, that were hard. The most miserable part was I had to go find the sources of all my quotations because I wanted everything to be legit. So like even the quotations, you know how people put in fluffy quotations like Abraham Lincoln said, you could do anything if you put your mind to it, which of course he never said anything like that because he's not a self-help guru. He's a, he was a president. So, uh, but people will say he said it. So then they just throw quotes in there. I actually went and found the sources of the quotations, like my favorite one being the shoulders of giants quote uh, from Isaac Newton. I actually saw the original letter that he wrote that quote in to verify its legitimacy and then quote it. And then I was able to cite the source. So it was pretty serious. It, it took a long time. It was absolutely brutal points, but I do really like the, the output. It's pretty comprehensive. And, and so did Isaac Newton actually say those exact words or did they kind of change them a little bit? Uh, but that was actually pretty spot on. So oh. like if I had seen further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants, something to that effect. That's pretty much what he said. Oh, wow. Wrote. So I guess what would be really useful to understand is the sort of the structure of the book. I was having a look earlier at mm -hmm. the contents and I saw there's eight different elements mm -hmm. that you talk about. But yeah, it'd be good to understand the structure of the book. Yeah, I tend to over explain things. So I set a rule for myself that I... Uh, the chapter names had to be one word, <laughs> so I didn't go overboard. But they're basically concepts. Each concept is a core driver of a human's a sense of meaning in his or her life. That's how it works. There are eight dri main drivers. Um, and those eight ma main drivers are growth, experience, desire, belief, emotions, ethics, support, and choice. And so each one, I, I'm pretty... Uh, obsessive about this stuff. So each chapter is structured in the exact same way. There are five subsections and they basically cover how this concept evolved in living things. Like starting, I, every chapter starts with single-celled organisms. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty seriously uh, going into evolutionary biology. And then it goes to humans. Then it goes to you. Like, how could you use this information, understanding how it evolved in, in organisms and then in humans. And then what would it happen if you didn't have that capability? Like if you didn't have choice, if you didn't have ethics, if you didn't have desire. And because, you know, I'm you know, trying to follow the scientific method here, you have to disprove that it's not a thing, not proving that it is a thing. And so that's that fourth section. And then the fifth section is where do you start? Like, what do you do if you don't know what you want? Or what do you do if you don't know what you believe? Or, you know, what do you do if you're stuck? And, and so it goes through each of those sections for each of those eight concepts to help you just completely comprehensively understand the topic. And then it ends with exercises and questions to get you to think about it for your own life and then apply it. I even have all these like, you know, write down a list of your growth areas and identify experiences and put those in. And at the end of the book, if you follow, actually do the work on the exercises, you'll have a complete map 
of your entire life plan at the end of the book. So by the end of reading and, and, and complete the book. So it's pretty, you know, fulfilling to get to something that's tangible at the end of, of the book. And Nate, who did you have in mind when you were writing the book as, as a reader? Is it aimed at a particular person or is it for everybody? Well, I kind of tilted at windmills with this one. I know you're supposed to have a target audience. I know you're supposed to play to the market. I didn't care. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it is everybody in, in, for, in terms of philosophy. So if you are a theist, if you're an atheist, if you're you know, you know, pure science, if you're law of attraction, the beauty of the eight concepts is that by definition, because they drive a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, every philosophy has to incorporate them into them <laughs> so or into it so you have to you have to account for these so like every belief system by definition has beliefs right they also suggest things that you should want in life or things like buddhism where they say well you should detach yourself from desire things like that so every philosophy has a position on these eight concepts and i don't take a position on the eight concepts i just tell you that you need to have them or understand them at least to find meaning in your life. So it's for everyone in that respect. I I, I, I do mention, I, I did notice in some of my reviews, atheists thought I mentioned God too much because I just said, hey, for those of you who are wondering how God fits in, for the sake of this, we're, we're putting that aside because I can't answer whether God exists or what created the universe or, or life or whatever. I can't answer that question scientifically, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, and apparently that was too much for some people. But then atheists, of course, were like, well, it's too atheistic. I'm like, well, it can't win, right? So it is for everybody in terms of like, I made sure I didn't exclude anyone for being able to uh, read it and go, oh yeah, these are the things. If I'm an atheist, they apply to me. If I'm a theist, they apply to me. They will apply to you regardless. However, in terms of who it's for from a psychographic perspective, probably the best audience would be someone who thinks like me in terms of wanting to know how things work so that they can master it. That's the kind of audience. So if you're looking for fluffy inspirational stories, there are a million self-help books out there, pretty much everyone tries to give you cute, funny, or inspirational stories. Not There's nothing of that sort in here. And yeah, okay, maybe that makes it a little bit drier. I can accept that. The second thing that's like no parables or, you know, like, you know, I'm going to tell you this weird story about whales or lions or something, and then you're going to somehow, you know, derive some sort of life advice from it. Uh, nothing like that uh, in there uh, either. It's very analytical. Uh, it's very literal. <laughs> It's very scientific, uh, or at least scientifically backed, as philosophy can be. And so if you're really trying to understand how to dissect it, understand it, and then do the actionable steps to, to figure it out for yourself, then that's great. The best audience, though, is if you read self-help books, or not even read them, but like if you look at the self-help book section and go, these are all great if I want to make a lot of money, or if I want to find love, or if I want to do this, but what if I don't know what I want? What if I don't understand anything? <laughs> what if I want to start from scratch? And my book assumes that you know nothing, like you don't know what your goal is, you don't know what your, your ethics are, and it helps you to construct them yourself. And so that's the one thing that bothered me about self-help books is because you have to define a target audience, you have to guess at what that person wants, and then they look at the title and say, oh, okay, I want money, so I'm going to read this book on money or success or whatever. This one assumes none of that and just helps you say, well, if you don't know what you want, let me help you understand how to figure it out. Okay. Wow. Now you've got me um, really excited because um, I can't wait to hear some of those concepts. And yeah. I mean, it'd be great if you could just share some of the insights that you found as you're writing the book and maybe even pick on some of those eight different 
elements as well. That'd be fantastic. So let's start out with the first one. Let's start out with growth. So a lot of people, when they say meaning of life, the contrarian point here is that they usually mean the goal of life, but there is no one goal for everybody. The goals are subjective. You can pick whatever you want to do in life. So I, I said, nope, that's not it. A lot of people think uh, meaning of life, they mean like, how should you live? What's the best way to live? Those are what you might know as ethics. I'm not going to tell you what ethics to have. That I consider that a conflict of interest to explain how things work and then also tell you how to live because then I'm injecting my own personal beliefs and ethics into, so you don't know what's science and what's not. What's my personal opinion, right? So I, I scrapped that. So I know those, if you want to go find, talk about those meanings of life, that's fine. Go do it somewhere else. Sit down my book. Um, but my book, there are three definitions uh, that growth satisfies with regards to meaning of life, and they are provable. So number one is growth is in the, literally in the definition of life. Go look it up. It says capacity for growth is, is literally in the definition of life. You cannot have a definition of life without the word growth in it. Two is the purpose of life. So we all know from Darwin that life is survival of the fittest, right? So you basically live to not die, right? <laughs> Uh, but what's the, what do you do? You, you survive, right? But why do you survive? You survive to grow. Every organism is built in with a drive, an inner drive to grow. That's what your hunger is. That's what your thirst is. That's what your sex drive is. Those are all growth drives. So it's literally in your DNA. So it's the meaning of life. But then the third one is, uh, it's what makes life significant. And you don't have to look further than award shows. So if someone gets an award, First of all, the person wins the award, not the thing. So like if someone, if something wins best picture, like the people go up, they don't like print out a copy of the DVD and hand it a trophy. Like that's ridiculous. They give it to the people. Now, why do they give it to the people? They give it because they grew into the people uh, who could make that wonderful piece of art or music or whatever. So you can see in real life that the point of life in terms of significance, in terms of purpose, in terms of definition, growth answers those three definitions. Got it. I like your analogy there about sort of the awards. Absolutely. You know, we get the Oscars and it's all about the people. And the movies are there just as the focal point, but actually it's the effort that people have put into it. Fantastic. Okay. Number two, experience. So, you know, experience is the medium through which all growth occurs. And experience I'm defining as any kind of observation or activity over time. So you have to, now everyone thinks about certain things like grass doesn't struggle to grow or anything like that. And very much so your cells just kind of do a lot of stuff on their own. So experience and effort aren't exactly the, the, the same thing necessarily. But what's important to note about experience is a lot of people think that, yeah, you have to like, if, if you're not growing as much as you like, you have to work harder. And that's not necessarily true. And the, the example I like to give is if you go to the gym and lift weights, right? When are you growing? Are you growing from the lifting of the weights? No, <laughs> actually, your muscles are breaking down. You grow from the recovery, from the rest and the recovery. And so a lot of people think, and while it's true, the more experience you have, the better you are. And of course, that's true. But you also have to rest. So a lot of people kind of miss that part and they burn themselves out. And they think that more growth is inherently through more effort and get and, and doing that sort of thing. And, and they just have to be clear that that's not necessarily the case. The other thing is that with experience is that you can get experience in a lot of different areas. And of course, we live in a time-limited society. You only have a certain amount of lifespan, so many hours in a day, and you got to get some sleep at some point. And so you do have to make trade-offs between which growth areas are important to you. And that's uh, definitely nothing to, to take lightly. But you don't need to work yourself to the detriment of everything else. You know, I mean, Tom Brady has a wife and, and kids. So 
and he's the best at what he does. So <laughs> it's not like he said, no, no, no wife, no kids, no life, just football. No, of course he does have a life outside. So you do want to make sure you strike a balance and keep yourself healthy and well, because if you actually grow in one area more by sacrificing others, after a certain point in time, you actually start to lose a little bit of that sense of meaning and fulfillment because you won't feel, I mean, fulfilled. Part of that fulfillment is, you know, the, the fill part. <laughs> uh, part of this is the full part and the part of this is the fill part. <laughs> and so you won't feel, you won't feel like rounded out and, and feel like you're getting everything you need to be happy. Yeah. yeah. So it's about living a fulfilling life and not just going into a jungle and, you know, sort of becoming a hermit. It's about really living life, I, I guess, is what you're saying, you know, having that sort of experience of everything. Yeah, yeah. You have to find experiences that are best to get you to the next step towards your growth goals. And you also have to make sure that those, you have to find meaning in the outcome and the experience. A lot of people just think that there's meaning in the outcome, right? And that could be mm -hmm. true. So like maybe you have a job you don't like, you know, a lot, you know, the famous at least American dream kind of story when you have immigrants come in and then basically work, you know, 24 seven. And they do to make enough money so that their kids can go to college and that their kids can have a better life. So maybe that's your goal in life and maybe that makes you happy. And so that's why you're willing to do it. And that's absolutely wonderful. That's fine. But just to note in terms of what, you know, you, you want to make sure that the experience uh, itself can be meaningful as well. So if you don't enjoy, like I'll use the gym ex uh, example. Uh, so everyone knows that everyone skips leg day. It's a funny, you know, uh, meme in the uh, weightlifting community. And so basically, if you really want to be the best weightlifter, you have to learn to love the leg day. That's the secret, right? It's to learn to love the process and not just uh, the outcome. Got it. Oh, fantastic. Oney, number three on the list. Desire. So, man, there's so many different ways I can go with this. Desire is the motivation. Keep it clean, though. Keep it clean. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, I'm not going like, to talk about uh, that kind of desire. Desire is the motivation uh, to have the experiences that will lead to growth, right? So you have a desire to go get food because the hunger drive, which makes you go get food. So you eat it and you grow. Uh, and so you stay alive. So that's really important. But I do think that most, this is where I kind of want to start to, I don't like to critique philosophies too much, but um, this one is is absolutely necessary. A lot of people think that desires are inherently bad, and I'm not sure why. Uh, I think it's because you can want to do things that are at others' uh, detriment, which is where ethics come in, which is number, what is it, number six. Um, we'll talk about that later. But just uh, two things about desire. First is that people only want, uh, people actually don't want bad things. They want good things. And they only think that bad things are necessary to attain. And you can take that anywhere from someone who steals bread because they're, they think that's the only way they can get the food. If they thought that they could get it another way, <laughs> then they would do that. So they think it's necessary. And you could go all the way. We'll go all the way to the other extreme, right? The Hitlers of the world. Like, I mean, as warped as it is, Hitler thought he was doing the world a favor. He was not, but he thought he was. And so, like, if he didn't have those really warped ideas, then he... Would, he wouldn't have done all the atrocious things that he did. So desire is everyone wants things to be better for themselves and the people that they care about. And that's a good thing. The other thing is that people associate desire with addiction and desire and addiction are, are different things because normal healthy desire uh, is to lead to your growth. And addiction, as I'll talk about in a second, and the emotions piece, because like, emotions can be hacked and we'll talk about that in a second, but addiction is not healthy, normal desire. It's hacking your brain, so your brain's reward system, and then you go through withdrawal after you've hacked it, and then you need more of that to get it. And so it's not really desire for, for growth and fulfillment. 
but it's actually usually comes from some sort of inner emptiness or pain that you're trying to cover up with like alcohol or drugs or whatever, or boredom is that <laughs> a lot of people get into drugs just because of boredom. But in any rate, that it's usually filling uh, the gap of some, uh, some sort of gap rather than some sort of normal healthy desire. We will talk about that in the emotions piece, but those are a couple of pieces from desire. Oh, fantastic. And um, leading on to, I think you're going to talk about belief next. This was the biggest one for me because I, I was trying to figure out how can I explain belief, you know, briefly in terms of my findings. And basically belief is anything that you assume to be true. And there's a subset of, de- of belief, which you might know as knowledge, which is stuff you actually know to be true because you can prove it in some way, right? <laughs> so there's beliefs in there and there's knowledge. You will always have beliefs because you can't know everything, right? I mean, technically, if you were getting super technical, you can't technically know the sun came up in the morning until you see it, right? <laughs> I mean, you could use science a study and try to figure out, well, this is how the uh, earth rotates and how it goes around the sun and everything. So this is when it's going to come up. But technically, you know, if you don't see it, technically, you know, an asteroid could hit the earth or something. You could have flown out of orbit. It could stop its rotation and, and the sun won't come up. So technically, unless you're observing something at a specific point in time, you technically don't know it. Technically. Um, you can reasonably conclude, but you're, you technically don't know. So everything pretty much is a belief that's not factually known at the present moment. So, so what's the thing about belief? Well, there is a problem. You have to believe enough in what's current and real so that you don't hurt yourself. So if you jump off a cliff and flap your arms, you will die. Uh, you will not fly. <laughs> On the other hand, you have to believe in the potential better future outcome enough where you continue to move forward for a better future. And so the Wright brothers, while they knew if they jumped off the cliff and flapped their arms, they would die. They also knew that if they could learn the laws of physics and how to master them from birds and all these other uh, things, that they could actually create a machine that would allow them to fly. But if they didn't believe that because flight for human flight, man-made flight, did not exist until it was invented. It did not exist before. So if you were a super skeptic and said, well, it doesn't exist, so it will never exist, then flight would never have been invented. Now, what's interesting about that, my, it was my biggest 180, was that I wasn't sure what I was going to say about like belief in terms of like faith. But when I thought about that definition, right, believe in the current reality so that you don't die, but believe in the future so that you don't hold yourself back to what your full potential is, there's one element you need to be as, as successful as possible. You have to believe in the potential for a positive outcome without or despite evidence. That is an absolute critical, essential component to success. And what's a word for that term or for that uh, definition? Faith. So you absolutely, I'm not saying religious faith. I'm not saying faith in God, although that is probably the primary way that human humans get it. But you need to have faith. You need to have belief in a positive outcome without or despite evidence. It's the only way you will really see what your full potential is. So that's a huge, that was a huge insight for me because like, whoa, I'm not a faith person. How do I get faith? Because I got If I'm going to be more successful, I got to believe more in that potential future, you know, without necessarily the evidence to back it up. Right, right. And I guess the skeptics would say that person has, you know, blind faith. But I guess what you're saying is like the Wright brothers, if they didn't truly believe in what they were doing, they would have just given up. Yeah. So you can have faith in yourself. You can have faith in science. You can have faith in other people. <laughs> you can have faith uh, that 
there are millions of minerals in the world. You'll find one that does whatever it needs, you know, to solve to, to cure this disease or whatever, not minerals, but like cut compounds, chemical compounds that can solve this problem. So you can believe in anything. It doesn't have to be uh, anything non-physical at all, but you do have to have, have faith of some sort because if you were a pure skeptic, nothing new would ever get invented. So like, yeah. is teleportation possible? Well, it doesn't exist now. If I were a skeptic, I'd say it will never exist because it doesn't exist now. And that's insane. It could possibly exist because someone might invent it one day. Just because it doesn't exist today doesn't mean it can't exist uh, tomorrow. And it's the people who actually believe, despite everyone else going, well, that's impossible. Those are the people who uh, succeed. Got it. Do it. Yeah. Okay. What's next on your list? Emotions. This Ooh. is my favorite. This is my absolute favorite. There are two insights here. Okay. One is that you can, if, if you, not you, but talking to the audience here, if you aren't in touch with your emotions, I will teach you how to be in touch with your emotions with one simple formula. It is the only formula you will ever need in your entire life. Emotions equal desire plus belief plus experience. That's it. Now you know exactly how to figure out your emotional state and any given situation. I'll give you an example so that's not just kind of vague. So if you're jealous, right? Jealousy is a combination of wanting a person or thing believing that you deserve that person or thing more importantly believing some other person uh doesn't who who has that person or thing doesn't deserve it and then seeing that person that you don't believe deserves it with that person or thing you want and if you want to get rid of your jealousy you just need to affect one of those three pieces of formula you can either not want that thing your jealousy goes away i'm not jealous of people who climb mount everest because i don't want to climb mount everest so i'm good <laughs> Uh, you can change the belief. You can either say, uh, I don't deserve that, although I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> uh, but you can, with the, the better belief to change is that person does deserve it. Or some things are just random. You can still do it, whatever. Any way to change the belief. If you believe that other person deserves it, you immediately change your emotional state from jealousy to admiration, period. Full stop. That's how emotions can change on a dime. And then finally, the experience. You could just leave and not look at the person, you know? <laughs> don't look at it, right? Uh, if it's making you feel bad, don't do it. So that's how you can figure out your emotional state. But my, my, my big uh, contrarian insight for the chapter is really about happiness. Happiness is objectively, and I can say this with 100% certainty, happiness is not the meaning of life. The more accurate statement, which many people do, stay, do say, is the meaning of life is to find what makes you happy. That is accurate. The meaning of life is to be happy, which I know like John Lennon or said, so, everyone, so now everyone thinks it's, it's fact, is not true. And I can tell you, in fact, I'm gonna, we'll play a game here and I'll, I'll show you how, how it becomes obvious when you see it. What is the point of going to school? Oh, to acquire knowledge? Yeah, to learn, right? Yeah. Why did you not immediately go, oh, it's to get an A? Because the A is an indicator that you've learned and as we know, it's not perfect. So you could have learned but not gotten an A if you're like a bad test taker. Or you can cheat and get an A but not have learned. Yeah. Absolutely. Happiness is the A. Got Happiness it. is the A. That's why it's, it's just logically and scientifically wrong that it's the meaning of life. It is an indicator that you are growing. If you are growing and thriving, you are happy. If you are hurt, you are not happy. If you're being harmed, you're not happy. So. You don't need to be happy all the time. In fact, that would be insane. Only crazy people are happy all the time. <laughs> I'm kidding. But because you have to have other emotions or else you would never change, right? So like yeah. if you, let's assume the fairy tale, right? Happily ever after. 
if you lived happily ever after, then you wouldn't need to do anything else. <laughs> I'm happy. Well, do I need to go to the, the, do I need to go to the gym? No, I'm happy. I don't need to get fit. <laughs> Screw that. You know, do I need to go, you know, paint a picture? No, I'm happy. I don't need to do anything else. So like, you don't want to be happy all the time because otherwise your life would be just nothing. You'd be sitting there. There's this old, oh, I forget, the euphoria machine or something. There's a short story I read in English class as a kid called the euphoria machine. It was like a, some sort of, uh, what is it called? Parable or whatever about like television, how it's turning people into zombies. It was just like you just sat there and you felt euphoria and you didn't have to do anything. Uh, now, that was a little extreme of referencing television. But I mean, literally, that's you're just, just sitting there as a zombie. You don't do anything if you were happy all the time. So emotion. So happiness, not the meaning of life. It is the indicator that you are growing. And so doing what makes you happy, which is more accurate description, is basically saying finding the growth areas to pursue and doing those will make you happy. And that's the point. That is correct. Just like going to school to learn. And getting an A to prove that you've learned is a fine way to describe the point of going to school. But if you said the point of going to school is an A, you'd either see yourself as a cynic, <laughs> like, who cares if you learn? Just give me the grade so I can get more money. Or you're kind of missing the point of like, you know, you, you, you're not there just to, to have other people like uh, praise you. You're there to actually... Uh, Got it. I love that. I love the way you simplified that in a way that I think is very tangible for someone to grasp and understand. Because before you'd given that example, I was thinking, of course, the meaning of life is all about being happy because everyone talks about being happy. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I, I no one will believe me until that's why I came up with that example. Because until I give people the example where they obviously say learning, no one has ever said to get an A. Right. And right. as soon as you go, happiness is the A, people go, Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it, it, so the whole chapter explains all that. So we, we can go on to, to ethics, but, uh, but that's, those are my two favorite emotions piece, pieces. Got it. Got it. So we're moving on to ethics. Sounds interesting. I, I guess that was one that you mentioned. Is that the biggest chapter you spent like hours and hours on that one? Yeah. Weeks and months. And I still feel pain thinking about it. But yeah, a couple of insights on this one. Uh, the first one is that uh, why are ethics even a thing? I, I, I will say that ethics are not universal, unchanging, changing, and divinely bestowed upon you. They are not that one hundred percent. And I give an, I have to give an example to back this up because people don't believe me, right? So I, I, I usually give the example that kind of playing on the whole eighties teenage uh, coming of age films where they do that all the time. Is it ethical for a parent to try to persuade or push uh, his or her child into the same field that they went into? And, you know, I've referenced in the 80s films, it's always like making the kid be the captain of the football team or whatever, or the star quarterback. And like, you wanted me to go to this. I want to get into dancing, you know, <laughs> and yet they're feeling pressure. And the answer, everyone today, at least in, in the United States, I guess, can't speak globally, but in more and in, in the most advanced societies from an economic standpoint. They would just say, oh, no, that's terrible. You should never do that to your kid. That's borderline child abuse. But. What about the 1400s? Let's say you have a small business, you're a blacksmith or something, I don't know, and you know you have 10 kids and you know a bunch of people are sick and you know it's hard to create a small business because you got like, I don't know, the monarchs and things telling you what to do and taking all your money with taxes or whatever. Is it ethical to say, nah, family, screw you, I'm going to go dance and it doesn't make any money and they'll probably die of starvation and so will you, but yeah, I want to do what I want to do. No. You're going to take on the damn blacksmith job. So, yeah. <laughs> so, like, ethics change. So, as life gets safer and better, ethics change. And so, you keep pushing the lines of ethics. That's why we have things like a lot of people are making debates around, like, treatment of animals and things like that. Because ethics evolved from 
ethics used to be just do whatever is best for yourself. Then it was like, well, now that you evolve to work with in groups, it's like, well, now I got to do what's best for myself and my usually re, when you reproduce, you do what's best for your kids, right? Then it's why well, you got to do it, but what's best for my family? Then what's best for my family and friends? Then what's best for my tribe or community? Then it, now it's what's best for society because we all relatively live, live in peace. And so you have to treat everyone equally in terms of laws and rules and things. So ethics aren't unchanging. That's a big one there. But the other insight about ethics. So just a little bit of background. There are two types of ethics. There are negative ethics and positive ethics. I did invent those terms so that you look them up and you won't find them except in my book. But the reason why I do that is because ethics are telling people not to harm people and positive ethics are saying to do something to achieve a, an outcome optimally, right? So, but that's why I differentiate the two because laws are usually focused on negative ethics. There are exceptions like things like, well, modern is like things like vaccine mandates, but they're modern, a little less uh, controversial is uh, stuff like jury duty, right? <laughs> it's like you have to go and participate in jury duty. But well, is that my, am I hurting anyone? And like, oh no, someone else hurts someone, you have to enforce it by, by doing jury duty. Okay, that's a positive ethic that's mandated by law. But most laws are, are, they try to stick in the realm of negative, right? Imagine having a law that said thou shall run three times a week or thou shall, you know, three servings of vegetables a day. It would be insane. Uh, people are like, screw you. Like, I don't, I don't need that. And ethics, the, the reason why the, I, I describe that is because the whole point of ethics is to maximize or optimize your own growth while minimizing harm to other people. And it's the fundamental or foundational component to all cooperation between intelligent, well, yeah, living organisms. It doesn't even have to be intelligent because technically bacteria cooperate. I, I won't get into that, but they can. So, so you have you have that ethics are absolutely necessary because without ethics, you don't have trust. Without trust, you can't cooperate. And there are actually three. I don't say I don't give anyone specific ethics to follow. In fact, I say every ethic has exceptions. So, like honesty has an exception. If someone's knocking on your door trying to kill someone, and uh, you have the person in your house, and they ask you if they're there, you say no. That's a lie. That's ethical. <laughs> so, you know, every ethic has its, uh, every like universal ethic has its uh, exception. So they're not universal. But there are three that are biological. And those are fairness, reciprocity, and minimal harm. And those three are biological. I can actually say them because there's an evolutionary, evolutionarily derived, because those are the three things you have to do to have trust to cooperate with other living organisms. If you don't have those, uh, those three things, like if I basically, let's say, let's take us. If you thought I was going to harm you, you wouldn't be talking to me. If you were didn't think I would reciprocate, you wouldn't like give me money or, you know, treat me to a round of beers or whatever. Like you wouldn't do it because you were like, well, if he's not going to do it for me, I'm not going to do it for him. And then fairness, if if you didn't think that we were going to tr be treat each other fairly, like if you if I said something and you were going to try to take it the absolute worst way humanly possible every time, then I couldn't trust you. We couldn't associate. So you need those three things. They're bu built in and they're necessary for uh, cooperation. Oh, as you were talking about the first example there, I was just thinking back to kind of my parents when they, so, so they're from India originally. And when they came to the UK in the kind of the sixties, they, based on the ethics, exactly what you're saying there, they couldn't say, Hey, I want to become a footballer or, you know, some left field sort of career choice. It was very much, we got to do what's right for the family because, yes. you know, it's bigger than just us. It's about the people around them. And then as I was growing up, it was, well, you do what you think is right for you, right? Don't feel obliged to yeah. do what we would want you to do. And now my kids, they won't even ask me the question. <laughs> They'll be just like, I want to be an influencer. And it doesn't matter what you say, dad, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so they, we have the luxury. 
Yeah. We have the luxury because us, our career choices are unlikely to harm other people. But hundreds of years ago, you make the wrong one, you are likely to cause harm to other people. So you can't do it. And in the future, it's going to be even uh, weirder what uh, could possibly uh, be harmful, right? I mean, we're already reaching a point where we're debating whether uh, words can hurt people enough where we need to restrict them. And, uh, you know, I know in the U.S. it's a big deal because we have freedom of speech. And so they're like, wait a second, we got freedom of speech. And they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, it, it could hurt someone's feelings, so don't say it. So, I mean, I, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to draw lines. I'm not here to say anything about it. I have my own opinions, but I don't say them in the book and I don't say them here. But just note that people are going to have these ethical debates for all time because, the. If, by the way, if you're curious, if you, if you ever want to, just for the audience, um, I won't get into the politics, but just to, to kind of help you think through politics uh, in the easiest, simplest way possible that will help you figure everything out pretty quickly. Every decision from a government or political perspective is a trade-off between individual freedom and public safety. So if, you're, if you want to be more free, you're going to be less safe. If you want to be more safe, you're going to be less free. To give a, a non-controversial example, if you were in the middle of the woods and there was a bear out there somewhere and you were afraid of it, you have a choice. You can either be free and just kind of roam the woods and hope it doesn't hurt you, or you can build a wall around you to protect yourself from the bear. You build the wall, you are more safe from the bear. The bear can't get in, but you are less free. You can't just walk through the wall. You have to climb over it, maybe create a door somewhere, and you're less free, but you are more safe. And so everybody's political persuasion is going to be this is how safe I want to be. This is how free I want to be. Some people want to be more free. Some people want to be more safe. And those people fight. And that's it. That, that's politics today in a nutshell. It's just, I want to be more free. And other people, well, I want to be more safe. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's such a topical debate in terms of COVID at the moment, isn't it? In terms of, yeah. am I a vaxxer or a non-vaxxer? And there's this whole safe versus, you know, what's the right thing to do? So, just before we run out of time, Nate, we've got two more to get through. So if we could hear the last two. Yeah. So I'll just give you the short versions for the last two. So support, the insight is that support gets you exponentially more growth with other people's help or even non-physical things. I mean, not, I'm sorry, not non-physical, excuse me. Um, although you could get for help from the non-physical, but stay out of the realm from, I mean, inanimate objects. I meant like if, you know, you can use a ladder to climb up a wall you couldn't buy yourself. But yes, yeah, so support helps you grow exponentially more than you could by yourself. And I give the example in the book of imagine starting from scratch millions of years ago and you had to build a self-driving car by yourself. <laughs> it would literally take you an eternity. I mean, literally an eternity. You'd have to invent math and physics and and fire by yourself in the wheel and then invent steel molting and then you'd have to uh, invent computers and then code them and then you'd have to throw all that together and then invent a car. It would take you literally trillions and trillions of years, I'm sure. And because we have billions of people on the planet and they can all specialize in different things, and they can come together and make that thing. They can make it and, you know, it took a, a couple thousand, right? Uh, or a few thousand, I guess, depending on where you start the the, 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 the clock, so to speak, with the with civilized society. But yeah, so, so that's really it for support is just that get help uh, and give help. And that's pretty much right. the big insight there. And by the way, that's the second half of cooperation. It's in conjunction with ethics. Ethics is in, 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 in short, Ethics is don't hurt people, support is help, help them. And then the last one, uh, choice, is that uh, basically it says, I know there's a, f- a debate between free will and determinism. I totally get that. And I hate that debate because of my opinion. It's one of my few things I'm just like, oh, this is a dumb debate. There are some things you can't control. There are some things you can. And the 
you know, not to paraphrase the uh, serenity prayer here, but the wisdom is knowing the difference and doing what you can with what you can control and doing uh, and not worrying about what you can't control. But there is a cool insight. I kind of, I didn't write in the book, but I kind of wrote a blog post later. And the blog post is, I think it was some funny thing like uh, buy insurance. And then I put it in parentheses and other ways to control your reality. And yeah, literally the title called, called buy insurance. But, but basically there are three definitions of reality. There is like the physical world, physical universe, right? And you can't control the laws of physics, right? But you can like work within them, right? You learn how to exploit them. Right. There's society, societal rules, which are made up completely and you can change them, but not by yourself. Usually, you know, you can't just like, I can't just like draw and build a fence around my house and say, I declare this a sovereign state or anything like that uh, without getting arrested or, or killed or something, but, and then, or put in the same asylum. And then the third reality is, is your perception of reality. How, you know, you live in your own reality kind of thing. Right. And what's cool about this is first of all, you can completely control your own perception of everything. So you can control your own emotions. You can choose what you focus your attention on. You can choose what you do with your life. So you can control pretty much your own perception of, of most things, right? You control that for the most part. The second one, society, you, you can't control it by yourself, but you can either drive change to what you want or you can move or associate with people who have similar beliefs so you can shape the society how you want. Uh, the example in the U.S. is there are a lot of people of a certain a certain belief system that moved all, all moved to San Francisco, so they can be with people who are like them. Good for them, you know. That's how you shape society in your own, or not just society, but you shape your reality in your own image or your own belief system, not literally your own image. And then finally, the physical reality. So you can't control things like the weather or whether the sun comes up or anything like that. But you can work within the system to control as much as possible. So we have shelter, right? You build houses to keep you out of the rain. So you can't control the weather, but you could either move yourself physically to a place where you like the weather. And you can, you know, now today in modern society with wealthy people, you can have two houses and go wherever the, the weather is good. One for every um, season of the year. Yeah, one for every season, yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, you uh, can, for things you can't control, you can mitigate the risk, which is hence the term, the name of the, that blog post was called by insurance is because if you can't control random stuff happening, then you can prepare for random stuff happening and then be able to control your ability to manage said risk happening. So you can control like 90, maybe over 90% of everything that happens to you if you look at it through those three lenses and identify, well, what can I control about this? Ignoring what you can't control or identifying and then mitigating the risk of it happening or, or the impact of it happening and then controlling everything else. So choice is such an important thing because, because you want to feel empowered at the end of the book to say, well, okay, what can I do differently to, to use these other seven? And so well, you have the choice to decide which growth areas you pursue, which experiences you have, what you want, uh, what you believe, what ethics you hold, what, what emotions you feel even. You can choose that by changing those three um, factors in the equation. You can choose what help you get and choose to do things to get more support you can choose uh, most of that. So most of your life is within your control. There are some things that are not, and you have to accept that and figure out what you can do to get around it. Wow. Fascinating. I think this whole episode has been so fascinating for me, Nate. There is so much there that I just want to deep dive on. And obviously we don't have that much time. Yeah. So I was going to say, you know, if anyone does want to go further and, and read further, Nate, how can they find your book? And I know your full name, I can't pronounce it. So I'm going to let you pronounce it so that people can find your book. Sure. So the name of the book is called The Meaning of Life, A Guide to Finding Your Life's Purpose. 
the author name, full name is Nathaniel Garrett Novosel. Although anyone could call me Nate, I just wanted to look fancy. And then uh, yourmeaninginglife.com is where all the info on the book is and all the awards it won. And, and my blog is on there, a bunch of links to things and so forth. The Life of the Book is my social media handle for most of them. You can probably find the Meaning of Life book somewhere if, if it's not. And then I also came out with a book recently called, it's a, it's a multi-author book called The X Factor, a Spiritual Succe- Secrets of Successful Executives and Entrepreneurs. I hope I got that right. I wrote one chapter in it. And it's actually how I ended the book, The Meaning of Life. And then I just wrote a chapter to kind of expand on it. Because the funny part about The Meaning of Life book, I ended it by saying with one word that said, if you want to feel more meaning in your life, you just have to do one simple thing, care. And that's it. I didn't put that all throughout the book because that would have been a cop out. Because if you know the definition of the word care is effectively to assign meaning to something, right? (laughs) And so if you care, you are at your acting in the in the capacity of, of the one who assigns meaning to, to, to your life or to, to your family or your friends or to whatever it is uh, in your life. And so I do tell people to, to, that all you need to do is care more about what, about your life and your growth areas and, and you'll and you'll find more meaning in them. In that book, The X Factor, I write one chapter and it talks about how to care more about your job to either care more about it in the moment so you enjoy it more. Again, enjoying the journey, the loving day, leg day, as I said earlier. Um, or the second piece is finding out what you like and don't like about your job and finding ways to move in your career or in your job or whatever, more to doing more things you like and trying to either make the stuff you don't like either less dislike, <laughs> distasteful or to do less of it somehow, like they go into a role that does less of it. And if you follow that system, you'll find you care more about everything in your life because you are either finding reasons to care or finding ways to get to do more things that you care about. Wow. So, Nate, final question. Yeah. The big question. What is the meaning of life? Meaning of life is growth through experience and areas that you want and believe. Using your emotions as a guide to see how you're doing things ethically so that you don't detract from the meaning, like people in the steroid era baseball, you know, uh, cheating and then and one's like, well, that's not significant achievement anymore because you cheated. To get help where you can to grow as much as you po- possibly can in the best way possible. And uh, to make choices every day to make your life meaningful. If you do those eight things, you'll find your life to be meaningful. Oh, nice. I love that. I love the way you weaved the whole book into that one definition right at the end. That was beautiful. So, Nate, I do want to just thank you so much. I mean, this conversation... I could have probably done 10 episodes on this and we still wouldn't have had enough time. So I really do appreciate you spending the time and sort of, you know, giving us that insight from the book. I'll leave you with the final word, any bits of final advice for anyone. It could be one of your biggest lessons learned in life or just some general uh, advice. It would be fantastic to leave on that note. Well, you asked me before we started this uh, to name my superpower. If you can't tell my superpower... Obsessing might be a superpower, but we're not going to use that one. I, I, my superpower, I always say, is understanding. I am obsessed with how things work and trying to understand it. I, I blame my, my mild uh, Asperger's for that because that's what they obsess over. Us <laughs> uh, Aspies, I only care about how things work. But, uh, but in all seriousness, you know, make your superpower to care or make your superpower to find meaning in your life or make your superpower to know exactly what your goals are or that that you balance your life so that you feel fulfilled, not just in one area, but in as many areas as possible. So that's what I would uh, recommend uh, to you. So use my obsession. Don't go and study for 20 some years like I did. Read my book, save yourself all that time, fill out the stuff, get your meeting and move on. 
That's yeah, and, and read the ethics uh, chapter thoroughly. Or skip past it if it's too much. It's a, <laughs> it is, I, I don't deny I, I did uh, have creative control over my book and chose to write uh, that long beast, but I'm okay if people are like, I get it, Nate, I'm just going to move on and I'll come back later. Oh, fantastic. No, thank you so much once again, Nate, and best of luck with the book. Thank you.